Hello, everybody. We are everybody. Everybody. We are back live with live, not live in like we're a not a recorded way. Yeah, we're not a rerun anymore. Dude, that was. Do you remember? Um, Sorry, uh, this is the word on the hill. And we are the Father lanky Peter. Guys. We are the lanky. <laughs> you are really getting ahead of yourself, dude. You're getting ahead of yourself. I'm trying to catch us up. Oh, My okay, name is Doctor Scott Powell. You are Father Peter Musset. We are the lanky guys. And Good night, everybody. This is the word on the hill. What up? Sorry, please continue now, dude. I um, do you remember rerun? Um, there's oh, yeah, a couple of the, reruns. Uh, on what's happening now, dude. Oh, and what's happening, the original. Oh. What's happening now was the sequel. Oh, my gosh. Come on, man. Dude. If anybody should know that, it should be you. Yeah, dude, you're you're just taking me in the Wayback Machine. Mm, Peabody and Sherman. Dude, well, man, you're fast. There's a new Did you drink caffeine for, today? A lot, because it's not Lent anymore. Oh. So I'm <laughs> regular six cups again. <laughs> There's a movie version of Peabody and Sherman that came out recently. Oh, how was it? pretty entertaining. Oh, okay. Yeah. Did you have any shout-outs? Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know that was quick. Do you have any shout-outs? I do. I do. I, I might. I want to give a shout-out to the Holzer family. Um, uh, oh, the Holzers are the best. Yeah. No, the the surf family. Oh, the whole surf. The whole surf family. The whole surf family, not the Holzer family. No, you no. You can see my confusion. No, it's Andrew, Julie, Ian, Brian, and Pat. Whoop whoop, dude! I just, I just love them. I got to spend the morning with them, and I just love them tremendously. Do they listen? Um, they have in the past, but nice. after this morning, I have a feeling they may tune in today. Boom! And if they I do, so. I want to give them a little special gift right Wh- out of the gate. My dad, my my dad was there, and he was like, he's like, dude, he says the podcast is great. Just get past the first fifteen minutes. Fifteen? And I was like, Dad, I was like, wait, wait a I was second. like, we've trimmed up since oh, like the old no. school days, man. Mickey, Mickey, we've. Well, we had the rerun last week. But my mom listens like faithfully every week. Oh. Because she gets to like hang out with us. Yeah, it's fun. We're fun. Dude. We're a riot. At least I am. Who are you, man? I don't know. I want to give a shout out to Haley Wiegand, though, who's a a focus missionary over at Carnegie Mellon University in in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And she is a fairly new listener, but she wanted to know about our opening theme music. And I always love every opportunity to talk about the band of Boy and His Kite, my friend Dave Wilton. So if you want to know more about our theme music and who that is, it's a group called A Boy and His Kite. Check them out. They're awesome. They have great stuff. Dave's a friend of ours. Um, and so here's to you, Haley. God bless your work. Adam here's Carnegie to Nolan. you, Mrs. Haley. Yeah. Heaven knows that Jesus loves you lots. <laughs> Uh, uh, uh. Well done. It is the second Sunday of Easter, Easter. also known as Divine Mercy Mer- Sunday. Divine Mercy, dude, which is that image that you've ever seen with Jesus and he's got rays coming out of him, like like red, white. my sound effects? Yeah, dude, that was really good. <laughs> Mercy! Indeed. And unless you're Thomas, the disciple. Dude, uh, Thomas gets he a did, particularly bad rap. And dude. I'm going to talk about why right after this. Well... So, our first reading is from Acts 5, 12 through 16. Interestingly enough, we have no Old Testament reading this Sunday. Ain't no Old Testament. Uh-uh. <laughs> we just got the new. So, yeah, Acts 5, 12 through 16. Our psalm, our sponsorial psalm, is Psalm 118, verses 2 through 4, jumping to 13 through 15, and then 22 through 24. With a responsorial with, uh, from number one. <laughs> yep, a responsorial. And then our second reading is from... Revelation 
Um, chapter 1, 9 through 11a, 12 through 13, 17 through 19. Mm-hmm. Cherry picking. Yeah, we're cherry picking everything today, <laughs> except our gospel, which is coming from John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. Dude, I feel like um, the ages from 19 to 31 are a very significant time in life. I'm just mm. saying. Mm. You know, mm, I was just thinking, profound. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. But, um, <laughs> dude, if you uh, just if you're ever thinking about the book of Acts of the Apostles, I just want you to picture a shiny, brand new axe, dude. Just like Acts of the Apostles, like like, dude, maybe Glim- Gimli is like wielding it. Maybe oh, uh, Paul Bunyan. Paul Bunyan, yeah. Wow, way, way to pull out Paul Bunyan on Divine Mercy Sunday. <laughs> you know? I mean, like, the two are very well connected. Yeah, so um, Acts 5, 12 through 16. Here, here's the, the, the th- one of the themes, the overarching themes of all of these readings today is that something new is happening. So, which is appropriate because now that we're post-Easter, something new really is happening. Easter, of course, isn't the end of the story. It's the beginning of the story. I think that's how... Christianity has always looked at it. This isn't the completion of everything. It, it is the fulfillment of everything, but now it's not done. Now the church gets to begin because now we're empowered with something. And so Acts of the Apostles is, this is a fascinating little passage. And I, I had to read it a number of times before I could wrap my head around what I think it's saying. And I don't know how many times you had to read this before you can wrap your head around I mean, what uh, it's saying. Maybe you're coming. I mean, one. Yeah. Dude, come on. You know me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I only need to read things once. So much. So much going on here. So this is so basically just prior to this. So, of course, we we begin Acts of the Apostles. Jesus appears to the apostles after his resurrection. He ascends into heaven. They witness all of this. He hangs out for a little bit. But, dude, this is the thing is that we always have to remember that the ascension is really the completion of the full Paschal mystery. Right. That that sometimes, like, we could be short-sighted Catholics Mm. and say— Oh, you know what? We're hanging out, you know, resurrection. Yay. No, no, no. Yeah. Man, we have the uh, ascension of Jesus Christ and then the descent of the Holy Spirit. So I guess I guess I, the descent of the Holy Spirit should really be the the completion of the Paschal ministry. I don't know, though. There's like that. I always put it as the ascension, but the descent think, of the Holy Spirit well, might I be. Think- Oh, not of the Paschal mystery, though, because right. the descent of the Holy Spirit is when you have the birth of the next chapter, which is the church and her mission. And the final the age Pas- of, of reality. Yeah, but the Paschal mystery, properly speaking, I think it's fair to say that the Ascension closes that particular chapter. Closes is a, is a poor word. Anyway, we'll get to the Ascension in a couple weeks. 50 okay. days in particular. 50 days and 40 nights. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Oh, gosh, you totally derailed me. That's my job. Yeah, so the they, Acts of the Apostles, we have the Ascension, and then we have Pentecost. The Holy Spirit um, descends. They are activated in a new way. They begin to preach the gospel. All these things happen. And you get really chapters one through the first part of chapter five of Acts of the Apostles mm-hmm. is all about what's happening in the church, what's, mm-hmm. uh, what's happening within the community of disciples. And it's not really until this point, midway through chapter five, that you begin to get an outward motion and see what's happening outside of the immediate community of believers, right? Yeah, you know what I love is that they're gathering together in the temple at the Solomon's Portico. Yeah, which is yeah within the temple. Which is the kids. temple area. Have you guys, have you, you've seen How to Start a Movement, the TED Talk? Oh yeah, it's fantastic. It's a fantastic one. And the way that Axe is described today, I just think of How to Start a Movement. Really? Yeah. I would take issue with that. Well, I take issue with you. Do you? Uh-huh. 
Well, as Dude. the straight man, I have no joke to go with it. <laughs> this is ridiculous. we got to get this show on the road. This show is on the road. <laughs> right. Many signs and wonders were done among the people. So um, I think we've talked about this before. If the Gospels are the story of what Jesus did and taught, Acts of the Apostles is the story of what the apostles continued to do and teach on behalf of Jesus, right? Which is, is, is very much how... Um, George Lucas wanted the prequel of Star Wars to relate to the first original trilogy. He said they should be rhyming. Yeah, no, it's so, true. So, so like what's happening is that you have the Acts of the Apostle taking up actually what's what's happened in Luke. So, yeah. and, and it's saying Jesus did all these things. Now we're going to see the church like go through the roof. They're going to they're going to actually take and they're going to multiply what Christ has done in like crazy ways. Yeah, I mean, very specifically, Christ is multiplying what he has done through the church. Thank you uh, for I know, your I know distinction. Yeah, but yeah. it's an important distinction because it's, it's not just— a critical one because it's not by our power that we do anything. Well, and, and it says this here in verse uh, 12, many signs and wonders were done among the people at the hands of the apostles. And even the way that Luke begins the book of Acts of the Apostles, he says in the first volume with Theophilus, the one yeah. he writes these letters to— um, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Mm. And in Acts of the Apostles, it's what Jesus continues to do and teach. Dude, you got to hand it to that guy for being able to make that distinction. At the hands of the apostles. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, there it is. Okay. Sorry. So they were all together in the Simon's Portico. Who, who do you think that they are? Because this is where it gets kind of weird. Apostles, disciples. Yeah, I think it's... it. it yeah, the apostles, the close disciples, probably just the apostles. I'm not. I'm not totally sure, but here's where it gets weird. So they're all together in Solomon's portico, which, which is in the the um, walls of the temple. Uh, and and actually, they've just healed. What what just happened? What just happened was this story of of, of these two people named Sapphira and Ananias, who were um, oh gosh, how do, how do I say this? Um, basically, they're lying to the apostles. They're claiming to be a part of this. Uh, they're they're doing these things. Are and they the ones who didn't sell the stuff? And yeah. Because of that, they got like smoked, struck dead, literally. Yeah, yeah. So that just happened. This has just taken place, and oh. then immediately after, you have them all together doing these mighty works, and it says none of the others dared to join them, but the people esteemed them. So you get the sense that people have probably witnessed this. They saw this. T- they, they've seen these healings. They're seeing the miracles. They saw these two dishonest people struck dead, which which and actually freaked out. Which is really important. When is the <clears> only <throat> other time that we see people struck dead? I mean, like but when they touch the tabernacle, in exactly. The Old which the Ark is of the covenant, which is a, a direct reference saying that the the Church of God is actually the residence of the uh, uh, the, the God's the, the, the church is, is is actually the residence of God's presence. Absolutely, in a real literal way. Yeah, it's not a metaphor. You can't mess with the church. Yes, exactly. You can't mess with Texas either. Mm, that was, you know, that's their anti, um, anti-littering campaign slogan. Don't mess with Texas. Really? Yeah. That's I didn't know that, that was about that littering. From. It was, which makes it much funnier to me. <laughs> um, so none of the others dared to join them, but the people were esteemed them. So people are afraid of the apostles, but they're yeah. still intrigued. I'm reminded of Herod. Remember King Herod, who uh, remember Cut early off on John the Baptist's head, but, but he, he just really to wanted to hear him. He's intrigued. He's threatened, but he's intrigued. Right. It's it's a little different than that. You know, they're they're just like, yeah, it's not. They don't quite have the that spirit, but. But here's where it's, so none of the others dared to join them. People esteemed them. Yet more than other believers in the Lord, yet more than other believers in the Lord, great numbers of men and women were added to them. How to start a movement. No, but listen to what it said. It said, 
The others were afraid to join them, yet great numbers were added to them. So people oh. are afraid to join them, mm. yet they're adding in numbers. What the heck? Isn't that kind of weird? And I read through all these different commentaries that are like, well, this is an unexplainable person. <laughs> they chalk they, they it up to Bible it. land. They, some of them do. Some of them chalk it up to technical language and who we're talking about. Is it the apostles? Is it the disciples? Is it outsiders? Here's the bottom line. This is the conclusion I've come to in reading this. They are embodying precisely what Jesus said. He said he's going to be a sign of contradiction. Hmm. He's going to not bring peace but the sword. He's going to divide families among families and mothers against sons and brother against sister, all these things. And this is the tension of Christianity, that it both brings people together and divides people simultaneously. This is the person of Christ, right? Right. Look at the religious leaders and the Pharisees and so many who were turned away from him. And look at all the others who were drawn in. Hmm. This has always been the case of Christianity. So what we're seeing in the Acts of the Apostles is that the figure of Jesus working through the hands of the apostles is both threatening people, probably driving some people away, and simultaneously bringing in others. It's confusing some people. It's intriguing other people. It's it, it, Acts is trying to show us this tension that ex, that always existed and will continue to exist in the life of the church. You know what I find really beautiful too is that the people esteemed them. Yeah. So so like when you're looking at yeah. at, 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 at they're like man those are all those followers of that guy who got executed and they're gathering in the temple they're like whoa like like the boldness of of them actually being present and preaching and baptizing and like going for it i mean at like profound personal risk the question is what changes esteem into conversion you know what i mean because a lot of people look at uh, look at mother teresa a lot of people look at pope francis and they're like oh isn't he great he's being so merciful he's doing these wonderful things there's a lot of esteem but how do you translate esteem into into actual conversion like benjamin i can do that i can follow in that way who's benjamin money i'm just kidding like that was, it was a total <laughs> oh the benjamins the benjamins uh, no no i mean that you know what i mean I, this I is the other question of Christianity. critical question yeah because we have that like consistently in my life is like, I know that there's a lot of people who respect me right. and love me. Right. And, but how do I like, but at what point is it the, the witness to hope, the witness of, and evidence of joy in my life and the yeah. I- intellectual questions and yeah. all those things come to the point of faith. Yeah. But what, what, you know what I mean? What does that? And and that actually is a fundamental question that will go through the rest of our readings, particularly into the gospel, I think. Yeah. Because that is a, it is a big question. But let, let's read on. So um, more believers were added, and thus they even carried the sick out into the streets. They laid them on cots and mats. The terminology that Luke chooses to use here. Um, is a direct reference back to the the people who put their paralytic friend, remember, on the cot and lowered him down into the house. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, he's he's echoing the things that Jesus did, like you said. But then you get to something that never happens in the gospel with Jesus, but I think it's fascinating. So that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on one or another of them. So they're just hoping as long, even if his shadow touches me, that could bring healing. That's unprecedented. I mean. The closest I can think of in the gospel is when, you know, the woman with the hemorrhage reaches out and touches the hem of his garment or the, the prayer shawl, right? The right. talit. But you never see somebody healed by Jesus' shadow. And it, it, on one hand, it shows, like you said, what the church is doing is actually blowing wide open what we see Jesus doing in the gospels. Now Jesus is doing even more. But the only 
so I was thinking about this a lot. Okay, shadows. Like they're trying to be healed by his shadow. What's the only reference you can think of in the gospel to shadows? Because I can only think of one. And I know you know this, and I was wondering, I thought I saw it in your eyes, that your mind was going there. Oh, gosh, I'm thinking of the crucifixion. Think of being overshadowed. Oh. Who was overshadowed? Oh, I mean, Mary. Yeah. The Annunciation. The presence of the Most High overshadowed. It's the only other reference I can think of in the Gospels, and it happens to be in the Gospel of Luke, who is the same author author of Acts of the Apostles. Yeah. There's something about the presence of God, like you said, indwelling in the church in a in an analogous way, not in the same way, but in an analogous way to even how the presence of God dwelt in the womb of Mary. Right. Now the presence of God is really literally within the church. It has overshadowed the church. And it is actually, you know, it's um oh never mind, it's in the it's in second reading. But it, it, it's coming other... out of the church. Yeah. It's literally emanating from Peter, which reminds me of the Transfiguration, where Jesus is literally emanating light and these things. Yeah. It, it's a fascinating image. It gets passed over a lot, but it's... Which, which I think is, is funny that Peter Pan loses <laughs> his shadow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, think about that. that <laughs> Peter Pan actually loses his ability to heal. What do I do with him? <laughs> And then because he <laughs> lost his shadow and his whole game is Wait, like, is that true? He loses his ability to heal because he lost his well, shadow? Well, I mean, come on. I don't remember Peter he, Pan that well. He's like Prince of the Lost Boys. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's all these people. Could he then, heal people? No, I don't know. Oh, just, I don't. I was thinking that this was a great analogy. Uh, me too. I mean, no, no, no. until I started to think about it. Well, that, that's where you can leave comments <laughs> on Facebook. There's something there. There's yeah, something yeah, yeah. there with yeah, the yeah, Peter Pan. Exactly. Losing his shadow. and Because, yeah. I mean, Peter in his shadow. I mean, I'm just, that's what I, my job is, yeah, is to no, find this in, in our normal everyday experience. I do want to also point out before we leave Acts, and I've, I've pointed this out before on the podcast, it's one of the most fascinating things for me about the church and about people's response to the church and what I wish we could be and I hope we still can be as a church. This idea that people are hearing about this, they're seeing them, there's got to be some recognition that, okay, Jesus was able to heal people. Here's Jesus's followers. Presumably, they can heal people as well. Right. Which is... That's a strange train of logic, isn't it? You're like, oh, here is this prophet who was, who was so powerful he could heal. His disciples can probably do the same stuff. Well, I mean, we, we I mean Elijah, Elijah, Elisha, dude, a d- a double portion yeah, of the yeah. spirit. I mean, like we've been given the same spirit poured out upon us that was poured out upon Christ. But the bigger question is, does the world look at us and say, oh, wow, I bet these Christians or this priest or these people who go to this church can do the kinds of things that I heard about Jesus doing? Well, is he, that the assumption? Well, see, I think you're actually asking one question short of that, Ooh. which is... Do we believe within the church that that's that actually? Do we is a, believe it? Oh. Do we do we believe that we're actually endowed with the gifts of the spirit? Like no, I don't think we do. Because like I don't. I, well, I, mean, I mean, I do in my mind, but I don't. I mean, I I look at I look at the the, the Catholicism and and like wh- what gets me really stoked are people who are like, man, we are spirit led. Who mm. I mean, they may not say it, but they're like, no, I'm going to follow the dictates of the spirit. Why are we set free? It's for freedom. 
Yeah. I mean, like, like you don't even know what you could possibly do because we can get afraid and we could say, hey, I got to get the rubrics right. I got to get the form right. I got to right. do these things. And I'm like, I mean, I, I grow out a big, stupid mustache and, a, and like long <laughs> ponytail because I, I want to tell people the fact that like, no, like the form, you can be spirit led. You can do like all sorts of stuff if you're willing to actually give yourself over to the spirit. And and that there's beautiful things that happen within the freedom that's that's been given because I don't think I don't think oftentimes that we're very well convinced of uh, uh, of the freedom that we actually have in no, Christ right. and and the invitation of the, uh, the Spirit for us to be able to actually live I be, think be live. I think you're absolutely right, and that's what gives the apostles such great. I mean, Jesus gives them their authority, but they're able to tap into it because they have full confidence in it. Right? They know if I go out, I'm going to be able to do. Is that? Did you guys? So mother uh, mother Angelica. From EWTN just died. Um, Easter two days. Ago. Oh, an Easter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a couple days ago, and she had a great quote. I've seen it kind of floating around on the internet. And she said, "I'm not afraid to fail." She said, "I'm scared to death of dying and having the Lord said say to me, Angelica, this is what you might have done if you trusted me more." Ooh. She said, "That's her biggest fear." Which, oh man, yes, isn't that great? Yes, that's her biggest fear. This is what you could have done. If you just trusted me a little bit more, that's kind of a terrifying thought, isn't it? Yep. Terrifying in the sense of like, man, he's got a lot planned out for us. Have you had twelve Reese's pieces? Uh, Reese's a, peanut butter cups? Right? No. I think you have. Here, uh, another one. Uh, thank okay. You, you um, guys, you guys, it's Easter, and I'm <laughs> I'm going a little cray. No, he's going a lot cray, dude. That's right, like that, you and your gummy worms, dude. You cannot you cannot judge. Grab the gummy worms, classic Father Peter. All right, oh. responsorial <laughs> song. The responsorial psalm, uh, traditionally in the church, the, the Psalm one eighteen, which is what we have, is um, in, in like matins and liturgy of the hours and all these sorts of things. It's the hymn, it's the the psalm, the hymn that's often most proper to Sunday morning prayers because it is literally a hymn about Easter Sunday in a lot of ways. Um, it's a hymn about Jesus, and it it's so. What you're saying, it's a hymn about him. <laughs> Give thanks to the Lord for he is good His love is everlasting Let the house of Israel say his mercy endures forever Let the house of Aaron say his mercy endures forever Yeah, it, chesed. it's Chesed, chesed. <laughs> You gotta sound like a cat hacking up a hairball Chesed, chesed. I really like that feeling in my mouth <laughs> Well, good um, And it, I was reading this commentator, Patrick Henry Reardon Who said the idea of this psalm, at least the way that we pray it in the Christian tradition, sort of in, in retrospect, because it was written, of course, before Jesus. So when you're saying idea, when we pray in a kind of a retro way? Right, with a big afro. But the idea is that every Sunday morning should be, in a certain sense, filled with, with uh, the paschal surprise. Um, and he quotes Luke 24, Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early, they astonished us when they didn't find his body, and they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. This is what the disciples are saying on the road to Emmaus, right? And he says, Our response to the message from these women should be, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. Let all of Israel say, His mercy endures forever. This is the proper response of the church upon hearing the message that Christ has risen from the dead. This is, it's, it's the psalm that I think is most proper to, to Easter Sunday, which is, which is beautiful. And, and if you read on the next um, well, stanza. Well, well, actually, before we get there, right. like, if you're really like a good cook, then you could actually kind of take your leftovers and then oh, you could make a dish me. called Paschal Surprise because it's the <laughs> resurrection of that which we thought was dead. <laughs> But then oh it's, a, it's it's like gosh. a Paschal surprise. You are insane. 
<laughs> Come on, the, his it, love endures it, forever, dude. Is it Elijah who's the one who? Uh, you remember the death in the pot story? Is, is it Elijah or Alicia who comes across those people and they've they've made this big stew and they they put a poisonous herb in it and he no. prophetically tells them that if they eat it they're gonna die. No. He's always he's the patron saint of Tupperware in the back of the fridge. So. <laughs> putting the Pascal surprise. He's the Pascal surprise, baby. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, the way the psalm goes on, um, <laughs> I mean, listen to the words. I was hard pressed and failing, but the Lord helped me. My strength and my courage is the Lord. He has been my savior. The joyful shout of victory. The stone which the builders have rejected has become the, the cornerstone. cornerstone. You know, Jesus. By the way, earlier in is it in the Gospel of Luke? Uh, no, it's Mark 12. Mark, um, Jesus has this psalm specifically in his mouth explaining that it's about him. Remember, he gives the parable of the, the tenants. Remember? So we already know that the the, the operative way of, of interpreting Psalm 118, Jesus already told us it's about him. Right. He said, this is me. Totally. But I love this. I mean, if, if you read on what the psalm says, which is not quoted in our... Um, in our reading, Sunday reading, I called on the Lord in distress. He answered and set me in a broad place. All nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me. They surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees, and they were quenched like a fire of thorns. How's that for a battle? Somebody comes at you with bees, and you knock them out with a fire of thorns. I mean, sorry, that was meant to be funnier. It was. It, yeah. Don't try. Don't try to pretend it was funny. But, but here's the thing. So we got bees. We got thorns. We have that fire. We funny. have nations surrounding me. Um, you pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The the thing about Easter that I just think we have to keep in mind. We sometimes and it's liturgically appropriate to talk about the fact that death did not overcome Jesus. Right. Death did not win. But I don't think that's exactly the, the emphasis that needs to be stressed. The stress is that Jesus defeated death. And that's what this psalm really gets at. This is not a passive, a passive. Um, well, Jesus rose from the dead. Everything's super now. The psalm speaks about a, a real battle. They surrounded me. There were armies. There were nations. There were bees. There was thorns. There was fire. And I fought them and I took them down and I destroyed them. I love the Eastern line in the the Byzant in the Saint John the liturgy of Saint John Christum. He trampled down death by death. The psalm reminds us that what we see on Easter Sunday when the tomb is empty is not just, oh, isn't that nice? Let's get Easter lilies and flowers and and white, you know, white cloths Banners. and hang them from the ceiling. This is a major battle has been victorious. A major battle has been fought. That's why the tomb is empty. And the only proper response is, oh my goodness, give thanks to the Lord for his love is everlasting. Yes. Th this is almost a response of shock. Like, oh, holy cow, this is amazing. I mean, imagine being the women who go to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body with oils. And you're like, he's gone. No one's ever done that before. He right. died. He's risen. He's not there anymore. This is this is profound. And I want to hang on to that thought because I want to come back to it in the Gospels. Okay. In the Gospel. Let's anyway, I, I'm struck by the psalm. Well, let's get to Revelation then. Okay. Which, I dude, Easter lilies, like, you know what I realized? I you, didn't make fun of Easter lilies. Whatever. You, yes, you did. I just, I like Easter lilies. But they start to smell after a while. Well, they smell, they're smelly flowers, but um, <laughs> they're a representation that the Garden of Eden has been reopened. Mm. 
and that we're actually participating in the Paschal mystery within mm. the reopened Garden of Eden with those two angels that are like sitting there just kind of like Hanging drinking out. some coffee, smoking a cigarette, being like, hey, you're looking for like the guy. Really? Yeah, dude. <laughs> Did you really just go there? <laughs> That's what I always think of the angels oh. doing. Like they're just kind of like chilling there. All I can see is Steve Baselli's face. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh yeah, which takes us to the the book of Revelation. <laughs> <laughs> Revelation. All right, here's the thing. So so Revelation 1 through 8, we kind of got the introductory um, portion of the book. We're still sort of in the introductory, but we pick it up in verse 9. And John says this. So remember, this is John, the beloved disciple, um, John the apostle. Brother the of James, living. son of Solomon. Salome. Salome. Mm-hmm. He says, I, John, your brother, who share with you the distress, the kingdom, and the endurance we have in Jesus, I found myself on the island called Patmos. Now remember, why was John on Patmos? Because he was arrested, put into exile. Yeah, he's not like having his little spring break vacation. I mean, he's in he's imprisoned on an island called Patmos. So he's exiled. So it's kind of like Alcatraz. It's kind of like Alcatraz. But kind of different. But but not. <laughs> um, but he's writing to these communities. So remember, he was the bishop of Ephesus, which um, was the the really the seat of these churches in Asia Minor, all of which are mentioned in the book. Right? And Mary lived with him. And Mary lived with him. But he's writing the book of Revelation as a letter, an encyclical letter, which just means a letter that cycles around. He's writing this letter back to his congregations, to his parishes right. back home. So he's saying, I, your brother, your bishop, I share with you the distress because these are churches that are suffering. They're about to face, or maybe they're in the middle of facing great persecution. And so he says, well, I I proclaimed God's word and I gave testimony to Jesus. And I was caught up in the spirit on the Lord's day, caught up in the spirit on the Lord's day. That's um, in the spirit is probably a worship terms, which means that most likely John is probably celebrating the mass on the Lord's day. What's the Lord's day? Well, it's Sunday. So this is kind of technical terminology, and this this is seen, you can find this in other ancient writings, but he's basically saying, as I was saying Mass as bishop on Sunday, which is what I do as a bishop and as a priest, I saw this, I heard this voice, and I saw this vision. And this is the moment in the book of Revelation where it's it's really difficult to tell where his vision kind of begins and where it ends. It all gets a little bit fuzzy from this point on. And it, it's really significant that you're... We remember people get so confused by the book of Revelation. I have a hard time totally understanding how our Protestant brothers and sisters actually make any sense of it. Because if you think of it in terms of, okay, this is a guy who's saying mass on Sunday and he sees this vision, realizing that everything he sees is part of the liturgy that's one long well, movement. Well, he sees censers and priests and incense and altars and, and candlestands. But but like but this is the thing is that if you go to the Old Testament and you see all these different other prophets who have a brief glimpse into the throne room of God, then we can actually reroute this stuff and yeah. say, oh, this is actually the reality of what's taking place within the worship of God, which is yeah. which is which is hard because what what happens is it's a blur, it's a sacramental blur. It's a sacramental blur. It's a Be- liturgical blur. It's a liturgical blur, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of like the triduum for many of my brother mm, priests that you guys have all just <laughs> have experienced. <laughs> a like, liturgical blur. Liturgical blur. It's true. So he's he's saying mass in this liturgical blur. And he, he heard a voice as loud as a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see 
And then I turned to see whose voice it was, and I turned and I saw seven gold lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, which of course is Jesus. He was wearing an ankle-length robe with a gold sash. It's a reference to Isaiah of the priestly garments, right? There's, there's so much imagery going on here. If you read on now, our reading kind of skips over it, but if you read on, it says that the very, it's in a, verse, a couple of verses later, it says that the seven lampstands are actually the seven churches of Asia right. Minor. And then it names all of the churches that he's supposed to write to. So these lampstands are the churches. There's seven of them. And that, that's literal. There's seven churches within his diocese. But remember, for the book of Revel- for the Bible in general, and the book of Revelation in particular, numbers are often more, um, more about uh, quality than quantity. Quality than quantity. Thank you. So what is the what is the number seven always represent? Covenant. It it often is a reference to the covenant, but Shava is not the word for covenant. Bereshit is, uh, or Berit. Uh, but what is what is what does seven mean? Do you remember what's the meaning of the word seven? It's not covenant. It's oh, often in reference to yeah, a covenant. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I shoot. I've been with you this long, I and, still, and still I forget. Have you been with me all this time? And still I, I can't know. remember. It's uh, completion or totality. Oh, yeah. Not perfection. Sometimes people say perfection. It's not quite perfection. See, it's totality. Be, see, this is the thing is that I have I always have the musical scale in my mind, and a, and a seventh tone is not actually completed in and of itself. You actually have to get to an eighth tone, but that's a Western scale. And so, like, I, yeah. I always, like, eight is, like, completion mm. to me because it's, like, eighth day. You know, like octave, like yeah. But the thing, but then, but then there's a, this this thrust that says that it's complete, but not quite complete yet, because mm. it's totality. Right. But completion actually comes when the beginning is the end, and the end is the beginning, and we are all in all in an eternal life. So that's true. So like, so I can I can accept your totality, but I cannot accept your completion. Well, the reason, okay, 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 take completion out of the equation. Let's just stick with totality. Okay. And then, because here's the problem with Revelation. Who is Revelation written to? John and the seven churches. Yeah, it's John writing to these seven churches. So what does that have to do with us? Well, it actually has everything to do with us. Because again, if you're a Jew, or or at least a Jew um, inform, Jewishly informed Gentile in one of these churches, and you're hearing, okay, this is a message to seven churches. What does seven represent? Totality. The totality. So who is this really a message to? Everybody. All of the churches, right? There are literally seven churches that he's writing to, but those seven churches in a certain sense represent all of us. Right. So he's writing this vision. He said, I caught sight of him, Jesus, and I fell down at his feet, and he touched me with his right hand, and he said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I was dead, and I am alive forever. I hold the keys to death. Um, and he's going to show him all these things. The reason I think this is so significant is because it's it it ties in so well with the first reading, which is now a commentary on the life of the church, which is this constant tension between suffering and glory, between rejection and acceptance. He's writing to these churches that are undergoing severe persecution and distress. He's like, I'm in prison here on Patmos, but guess what? Jesus appeared to me and showed to me his glory. You're all suffering there in your churches. This is really ugly. But guess what? I'm going to spend this letter pulling back the veil to show you the reality that's beyond what you can see. Does it feel like everybody hates you? Does it feel like you're getting persecuted? That's okay because, in fact, God's doing great work through this. Right. Does it feel like everyone is, is rejecting the apostles in Acts 5? Yeah, partially, but God's also adding to their numbers. It's a both and. People are being struck dead. People are being brought to life, right? Your churches are suffering. Your churches are being shown the glory. This is the, this is the resurrection. You have Good Friday and you have Easter Sunday. And sometimes the line between the two gets a little bit blurry, right? 
Yeah, which because we live in the midst of both. Yeah, and and one of the things that you can do to help understand that that, that there is a deeper meaning rather than just some sort of visual quality is just Google any of these things and look at the image tab on the Son of Man in the Book of Revelation or the Lamb of God, and you're like, what is going on? This is it's not just meant to be some sort of like visualization of something. There's right. actually it's not just it's not just um, quality. It's 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 not just quantity. It's quality. Well, it's about is... something because you, when you look at these images, you're like, man, these are people trying to like represent this stuff, but it is not. It's not working the way it's it, that we understand actually the truth of faith. But that's part of the problem I think part of the problem is our culture and because we have is you're holding your iPhone right now I've got my MacBook in front of me we're so visually oriented we can we hear something and we can do quickly search a Google image search and find what it looks like immediately but you know put yourself in the minds of the ancients put yourself in the Jewish mindset of the first centuries I mean this is this is a people who are very concrete, and so the images you get in the Bible are very concrete. So, you know, for example, later on in Revelation, he's going to talk about the evil one as a seven-headed dragon, right? Right. And we moderns will say, like, well, we know that the evil one has no actual body, right? He's spirit. He's angelic. We know that Satan doesn't have a form. But that, that's the whole point, right? He's trying to evoke something. I mean, when I've never seen a dragon in real life. I've never, you know, seen somebody. I saw the movie How to Train Your Dragon. Mm. <laughs> but imagine you hadn't seen that. Imagine you don't really have a clear picture of what a dragon looks like. Right. You're reading, and your mind is meant to conjure up this kind of horrifying vision. Right. This is what the Hebrew texts are meant to do. They're meant to evoke something that should. Uh, draw an emotion up in us. And this mm. is why it's a problem mm. that we're so visually oriented and we have access to everything in our fingertips. Right. It doesn't evoke things anymore. I mean, you're reading the book of Genesis, you're reading the creation story, and you hear that there's this this sneaky, slithering snake or this serpent. That the idea of a nice serpent should freak you out a little bit. Like right. if a snake crosses my path, I'm going to have chills run up and down my spine. That's yes. the right reaction. Yes. That's what this is trying to evoke in us. Yes. And that's why the quality of these images and this numbers and everything else, it's so powerful. Or at least it's meant to be powerful. And we've dulled that in ourselves, I think. But I don't think we can underestimate it. So that takes us to the Gospels. And now we got P. Diddy. T. Diddy. T. Diddy, dude. T. Diddy, man. That's my boy, Thomas Didymus. <sighs> Thomas Didymus. Okay, so the first day, of the, it's the first day of the week. It's Easter Sunday. The doors are locked. I mean, I think it's really important to remember that the reason why we read this on second Sunday is because he's he has to come around and his revelation happens on the second Sunday. He was like, he was off hanging out with the angels in the reopened garden. He, I don't know what he was doing. Like, he was just, he was drinking some coffee, just like chilling out, some Turkish coffee. Like, I don't know what he was doing. I don't know where Thomas was. I, I, but here's the thing. So we give Thomas, this is, you know, Tom, the, the, Thomas wasn't there when Jesus came. This is also, by the way, this is an important moment because Jesus appears to the 12. They're locked in the room. They're freaked out. Right. Why are they freaked out, by the way? Who do they not believe? This is really important. I've never thought about this until today, walking up to your house. The I apostles are freaked out because they don't believe the women. I think you're absolutely right. Which or at is, least they're skeptical. Well, gosh, that's hap- that's important because today is Emmaus Day. I mean, that we're recording. It is, but 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 just for the sake of this narrative, they're all freaked out. They're in the upper room because they've been told the resurrection has happened. His body's gone. He's risen. Right. They're skeptical of it, or maybe they outright disbelieve. They're still freaked out. They're they're left in their blah blah blah. Um, Jesus appears. He sees them. 
and they they believe because they saw, because they spoke with him and all these things. And then he says, peace be with you. He breathes on them. He, he says, he gives them the, the authority to forgive sins. He insists the sacrament of confession, all these things. And then Thomas comes and the others say, we have seen the Lord. And what's Thomas's response? He's skeptical. He wants to put his hands in the, the wounds, right? His response is skepticism. And we immediately give him a bad name because of that. And we think he's the doubting, he even gets a title, the doubting Thomas. What were the apostles doing just a couple of lines earlier? Doubting. Doubting the resurrection. Why? Because they didn't see it. The women come and tell them. They say, this has happened. They don't believe until they see and actually feel the breath, right? Thomas is doing nothing that the other apostles didn't do. Right. He, what sets Thomas apart? I have no idea. Does that make any... I was thinking about that. It's just what a bad rap he gets. He didn't do anything different than their response a couple lines earlier. They didn't believe because they didn't see. Thomas is just right along with them. He doesn't believe. Well, he's, he's skeptical, right? Until he puts his hands in the side. Um, but, but here's the thing about Thomas that I think is so beautiful in the way the church allows us to kind of... And invites us then. So it's funny. We get the reading about Thomas after Easter. It's a little bit late, isn't it? So we yeah. hear about what happened on Easter Sunday, but we hear it a little bit late. It's a week later. Mm-hmm. Why? Because Thomas is hearing what happened, but he's hearing it a little bit late. But the apostles, again, they heard that this resurrection had happened. They heard the testimony of the women. They didn't believe, and then they saw Jesus, and they believe. Thomas is experiencing Easter Sunday for the first time right here. He's a little bit late, so we read about it a little bit late in the liturgy, but he's ex- He's experiencing the resurrection. Right. He's experiencing Easter Sunday. It's still Easter Sunday, granted. But he's experiencing his own Easter Sunday. And his response is strikingly similar to Psalm 118. His response is exactly appropriate. Yeah, he was skeptical. Yes, he doubted. He probably should have just believed without seeing. That's what Jesus tells us, especially in the Gospel of John. You should believe without seeing. But guess what? None of the other apostles believed without seeing either. Right. And we don't give them a bad rap. Thomas was a little bit late. He's a little bit slow. But then he sees Jesus revealed to him. He recognizes Easter Sunday. And he responds appropriately. My Lord and my God. And Jesus rebukes him a little bit. But I love the story of Thomas because it gives the rest of us hope. Right. It gives hope to those of us who don't necessarily get things right on the first try. He gives hope to those of us who missed the boat the first time around. Maybe you totally let Easter pass you by. Maybe you were worried about your family coming over for dinner. Maybe you were worried about the brunch, the kids, Easter eggs, whatever it was. And you're like, man, I didn't, I didn't appreciate Easter Sunday last week like I should have. Right. Maybe the podcast was on rerun. <laughs> you, <laughs> you just didn't enter in the way you wish you would have. Well, guess what? This Sunday is your second chance. You get to be like Thomas. You get to have Easter Sunday again. You get, I mean, this is the way of, this is the, it's divine mercy Sunday. What does this mercy consist of? That every day is a new opportunity to experience the resurrection. Every day is the new opportunity to be told, no, he really has risen from the dead. He really has trampled down death by death. You didn't get it. You haven't noticed it for 2000 years or the 40 years of your life so far. Fine. Here's another opportunity to realize it. Be like Thomas. Take the opportunity that's right in front of you. Fall on your knees and say, my Lord and my God, I believe. That's what's so beautiful about this. Yeah. And And then you can begin like they do in Acts chapter five. They begin. And like they do in Revelation where we actually get to believe though we do not see. 
Right. Whereas he got to see and he's like, let me convey something to you. And you're like, I'm trying. Yeah. I'm trying to get into this and understand and grasp the meaning of this and mm. and allow myself to, to, to enter into those moments and to begin and oh. begin again and... And make it real. Yeah, absolutely. It, the, the, the reading ends by saying, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written that you may come to believe. So in other words, Jesus did all sorts of things that are not recorded in the Gospels. Well, where are some of them? Some of them are in Acts. Because we can't forget that Jesus continues to do all these things through the hands of his disciples. Some of them are recorded here and now. Some of them are through the hands of Mother Angelica and the work that she just did. Some of them are through the hands of you and I and the Holy Father and the rest of the people doing ministry. And, the, um, you know, that focus missionary we gave a shout out at the beginning of the gospel. Jesus is continuing to work. So John's words that everything that he did and said is not written in this book. Why? Because there's lots more that just wouldn't fit, and there's also lots more that will continue to be carried on as Jesus continues to use the church as his vessel to bring grace into the world. It continues on. It's just sort of a beautiful kind of closing note for these readings. And a beautiful closing note for our podcast For the podcast. Y'all, wow. Immerse all the sinners in the ocean of God's divine mercy, Mm. including yourselves, because... You're you're a sinner. And mm, sorry and, you guys. And same with you, Scott. You are too. I know. I'm not, but that's okay. Oh. I, I'll just I'm just kidding. Well, See, just by doing that, I'm I'm a bad You have sinned. Yeah, I've <laughs> Forgive me, Scott, for I have sinned. Yeah. You guys are I the best. We'll see you next week. We'll uh, be back with a brand new podcast, hopefully not on rerun, and we will see you then. Okay. Bye bye. Bye.